0: The following is a conversation with Joe Buller, a mathematics educator at Stanford and co-founder of ucubed.org that seeks to inspire young minds with the beauty of mathematics. To support this podcast, please check out our sponsors in the description. As usual, I'll do a few minutes of ads now, no ads in the middle. I try to make these interesting, so hopefully you don't skip, but if you do, Please still check out the sponsor links in the description. It really is the best way to support this podcast. I use their stuff, I enjoy it, I love it. Maybe you will too. This show is brought to you by Truebill, a new app that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions you don't need, want, or simply forgot about. On average, people save up to $720 a year with True Bill. I started using Truebill and it's kind of amazing how many subscriptions I totally forgot about so it was um both financially and just uh psychologically and spiritually, it was good to let go of those subscriptions. As you may know, I'm a big fan of minimalism and physical space. It allows me to focus on the people in my life. And there's something about subscriptions that's just kinda hanging on to the past and getting rid of those subscriptions that I don't use anymore is uh, is liberating. It just for me it it uh it feels really good. But obviously there's big financial savings. We probably don't have time for me to rant on how difficult it is to cancel things, but uh, you should definitely use the best tool for the job, and Truebill is a great one. You can start canceling subscriptions today at truebill.com slash lex. Like I said, in terms of savings, you can save thousands of dollars a year at truebill.com slash lex. That's truebill.com slash lex. This episode is also brought to you by Fundrise, spelled F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E. It's a platform that allows you to invest in private real estate. If you're looking to diversify your investment portfolio, this is a great choice. There's been a lot of conversations about cryptocurrency. There's been a lot of conversations about uh, investment. I highly recommend that you diversify, whatever that means to you, and to me personally, it uh, happens that uh, Fundrise and private real estate is a, is a really great idea for diversification. I'm not a professional investor, but it just seems like common sense. 150,000 investors use it. It takes just a few minutes to get started at fundrise.com lex. Again, spelled is F-U-N-D, rise. Not just fun, but it's fund. Fundrise.com lex. That's fundrise.com lex. This show is also brought to you by ExpressVPN. I use them to protect my privacy on the internet and I've used them for many years. I love it for many reasons. Obviously on the privacy side, ISPs collect your data even when you're using incognito mode on Chrome. So I think it's really good to use a VPN and ExpressVPN is my favorite. Also in terms of things like Netflix or Hulu, ExpressVPN allows you to change your location from the perspective of the website that you're browsing or the app that you're browsing. And so that allows you to watch shows that are only available in certain uh, geographic locations. Finally, the big reason I love ExpressVPN and I've used it for many years is that the connection is just fast. It works flawlessly on any device, any operating system, including my favorite operating system, Linux. Anyway, go to expressvpn.com slash lexpod to get an extra three months free That's expressvpn.com slash lexpod. Did I mention that the design they have is simple with a beautiful big button that just works. This episode is also brought to you by Indeed, a hiring website. I've used them as part of many hiring efforts I've done for the teams I've led in the past. They have tools like Indeed Instant Match, giving you quality candidates whose resumes at Indeed fit your job description immediately. This first step of getting a great set of candidates, I think uh, is essential for an effective hiring process. I think it's one of the hardest, to be honest. And to me, one of the biggest joys in life is to work on a team of people that make you excited to wake up in the morning and get some awesome stuff done. And hiring, obviously, is the biggest part of that. So not just for financial reasons, but just for happiness reasons. You have to take hiring really seriously, and use the best tool for the job. Anyway, right now, get a free $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com lex. Get it at indeed.com lex. Offer is valid through September 30th. Terms and conditions apply. Join 3 million businesses that use Indeed by going to indeed.com lex. This show is also brought to you by stamps.com mail and ship anytime, anywhere, right from your computer without needing to take a trip to the post office, send letters, ship packages, and pay less with discounted rates from USPS and now UPS. It's a bit surreal and kind of an incredible feeling for me to be doing a com ad read because I've been a fan of podcasts for many years and com has been supporting those podcasts. And so I almost... uh associate at Stamps.com read with the podcast that has truly made it. So I feel like I have made it. I know it's a silly feeling, but uh, it is uh, what I feel. So you can save time and money with Stamps.com. There's no risk. And with my promo code Lex, you get a special offer that includes four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top, of the homepage, and type in Lex. That's stamps.com, promo code Lex, stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. This is the Lex Friedman Podcast, and here is my conversation with Joe Bowler. What to you is beautiful
1: about mathematics? I love a mathematics that some people don't even think of as mathematics, which is beautiful, creative mathematics where we look at maths in different ways, we visualize it. We think about different solutions to problems. A lot of people think of maths as you have one method and one answer and what i love about maths is the multiple different ways you can see things different methods different ways of seeing different in some cases different solutions so that is what is beautiful to me about mathematics that you can see and solve it in many different ways and also the sad part that many people think that maths is just one answer and one method mm-hmm.
0: so to you the beautiful the beauty emerges when you have problem with a solution and you start adding other solutions, simpler solutions, mm-hmm. uh, weirder solutions, more yeah. interesting, some of are visual, some of their algebraic, geometry, all that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I always say that you can take any maths area and make it visual. Mm-hmm. And we say to teachers, give us your most dry, boring maths and we'll make it a visual, interesting, creative problem. And turns out you can do that with any area of maths. And I think we've given pe- – it's been a great disservice to kids and others that it's always been numbers, lots and lots of numbers. Numbers can be great, but you can think about maths in other ways besides numbers.
0: Do you find that most people are better visual learners or is this just something that's complementary? What's the kind of the full spectrum of students in mm-hmm. the way they like to explore math, would you say?
1: I mean, there's definitely people who come into – The classes I do who are more interested in visual thinking and like visual approaches. But it turns out what the neuroscience is telling us is that when we think about maths, there are two visual pathways in the brain, and we should all be thinking about it visually. Some approaches have been to say, well, you're a visual learner, so we'll give you visuals, and you're not a visual learner. But actually, if you think you're not a visual learner, it's probably more important that you have a visual approach so you can develop that part of your brain.
0: So you were saying that there's some kind of interconnected aspect to it. So the visual connects with the non-visual.
1: Yeah, so this is what the neuroscience has shown us that when you work on a maths problem, there are five different brain pathways and that the most high achieving people in the world are people who have more connections between these pathways. So if you see a maths problem with numbers, but you also see it visually, that will cause a connection to happen in your brain between these pathways. And if you maybe write about it with words, that would cause another connection, or maybe you build it with something physical that would cause a different connection. And what we want for kids is, we call it a multi-dimensional experience of maths, seeing it in different ways, experiencing it in different ways. That will cause that Great connected brain.
0: You know, there's these stories of physicists doing the same. I find physicists are often better at building that part of their brain of uh, using visualization mm-hmm. for intuition building. Because you ultimately want to understand the, like, the deepest secret underneath this problem. And for that, you have to, to intuit your way there. Yeah. And you, you mentioned offline that um, one of the ways you might approach a problem is to try to tell a story about it. Mm-hmm. And some of it is like legend, but... I'm sure it's not always is, you know, you have Einstein uh, thinking about a train, you know, and the Mm -hmm. speed of light and, you know, that kind of intuition is useful. Yeah, You start to like imagine a physical world, like how does this idea manifest itself in the physical world and then start playing in your mind with that physical Mm -hmm. world Mm
1: -hmm. and think, is
0: this going to be true? Is this going to be true?
1: Right, right. Einstein is well known for thinking visually Mm -hmm. and people talk about how he really didn't want to go anywhere with problems without thinking about them visually. But the other thing you mentioned that sparked something for me is thinking with intuition, like having intuition about maths problems. That's another thing that's often absent in maths class, the idea that you might think about a problem and use your intuition, um, but so important. And when mathematicians are interviewed, they will very frequently talk about the role of intuition in Mm -hmm. solving problems, but not commonly acknowledged or brought into education.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's what it is. Like if if you task yourself with building an intuition about a problem, that's where what, that's what you start to pull in like, um, what is the pattern I'm seeing? In mm-hmm. order to understand the pattern, you might want to then start utilizing visualization. Mm-hmm. But ultimately it, that's all in service of like, solving the puzzle. <laughs> like cracking right. it open yeah. to get the simple explanation of what why why things are the way they are, uh, as opposed to um, like you said, having a particular algorithm that you can then execute right. to solve the problem. Yeah, but it's hard. It's hard. Yeah, like reasoning is really hard.
1: Yeah, it's it's hard. I mean, I love to value what's hard in maths instead of being afraid of it. We know that when you struggle, that's actually a really good time for your brain you want to be struggling when you're thinking about things. So if it's hard to think intuitively about something, that's probably a really good time for your brain. I I used to work with somebody called Sebastian Thrun, who Mm -hmm. is a great sort of mathematician, you might think of him, AI person. And I remember in one interview I did with him, he talked about how they'd built robots, I think for the Smithsonian, and how they were having this trouble with them picking up white noise. Mm -hmm. And he said they had to solve it. They had to work out what's going on and how he intuitively worked out what the problem was. But then it took him three weeks to show it mathematically. I thought that was really interesting that how you can have this intuition and know something works. It's kind of different from going through that long mathematical process of proving it. But so important.
0: Yeah, it's, I think probably our brains are evolved as like intuition machines, and the uh, the the math of like showing it like formally is probably an extra thing that we're not designed for. You yeah. see that with Feynman yeah. and the, his. Um, I mean, it just all of these physicists definitely you see um, starting with intuition, sometimes starting with an experiment. And then the experiment inspires intuition, but you can think of an experiment as a kind of visualization right just like let's let's take whatever the heck we're looking at and draw it and and draw like uh, the pattern as it evolves as the thing grows for n equals one for n equals two n equals three and you start uh, to play with it And then in the modern day, which I loved uh, doing, is you know you can write a program that then visualizes it for you, right? And then you can start exploring it programmatically,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and that that and then uh, you can do so interactively too. I, I tend to not uh, like interactive because of the way it takes way too much work because you have to click and move and stuff. I love to interact through writing programs, mm-hmm. but that's my particular brain, software engineer. So like you can you can uh, do all these kinds of visualizations. Uh, and then there's the tools of visualization, like color, uh, all of yeah. those kinds of things, yeah, that you're you're absolutely right. They're actually not taught very much, right. Like the art of visualization
1: not taught. And we love as well color coding, like when you represent something mathematically, you can show color to show the growth, yeah, and kind of code that. So if I have an algebraic expression for a pattern. Maybe I show the X with a certain color, but also write in that color so you can see the relationship. Very cool. And, um, yeah, we particularly in our work with elementary teachers, many of them come to our workshops and they're literally in tears when they see things making sense visually Mm -hmm. because they've spent their whole lives not realizing you can really understand things with these visuals. It's quite powerful.
0: You say that uh, there's something about there's something valuable to learning when the thing that you're doing is challenging, is difficult. So a lot of people say, you know, math is hard, or math is too hard, or too hard for me. Do you think math should be easy or should it be hard?
1: I think it's great when things are challenging, but there's something that that's really key to being able to deal with challenging maths. And that is knowing that you can do it. And I think the problem in education is a lot of people have got this idea that you're either born with a maths brain or you're not. So when they start to struggle, they think, oh, I don't have that maths brain. And then they will literally sort of switch off in their brain and things will go downhill from that point. So struggle becomes a lot easier and you're able to struggle if you don't have that idea. But you know that you you can do it. You have to go through this struggle to get there. But you're you're able to do that, and so we're hampered in being able to struggle with these ideas we've been given about what we can do.
0: Can I ask a difficult question here. Yeah. So there's kind of um, I don't know what the right term is, but some people are um, struggle with learning in different ways, like their brain is constructed in different ways Mm -hmm. and um, how much should as educators should we make room for that so how do you know the difference between this is hard and Mm -hmm. i don't like doing hard things versus my brain is wired in a way where i need to learn in very different ways i can't learn it this way Mm -hmm. how do you find that Mm -hmm. line how do you operate Mm -hmm. in that gray area
1: so this is why being a teacher is so hard and people really don't appreciate how difficult teaching is when you're faced with, I don't know, 30 students who think in different ways. And, um, but this is also why I believe it's so important to have this multidimensional approach to maths. We've really offered it in one way, which is, here's some numbers and a method. You follow me, do what I just did, and then reproduce it. And so there are some kids who like doing that and they do well. And a lot of kids who don't like doing it and don't do well. But when you open up maths and you give, you let kids experience it in different ways, maybe visually, with numbers, with words, what happens is kids, there are many more kids who can access it. Mm -hmm. So, those different brain wirings you're talking about, where some people are just more able to do something in a particular way, that's why we want to, that's one of the reasons we want to open it up so that there are different ways of accessing it. And then that's not really a, a problem.
0: So I uh, grew up in the Soviet Union and uh, fell in love with math early. I was forced into math early and fell in love through force.
1: That's good. Well, good that you <laughs> fell in love <laughs> about the force. Well,
0: but there, uh something we, we talked about a little bit is there is such a value for excellence. Uh, it's competitive and, and it's also everybody kind of looks up the, the definition of success is being uh, in a particular class is, you know, being really good at it. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm.
0: Um, and like, it's not improving. It's like being really good. I mean, we are much more like that with sports, for example. We're not, it's like, it's understood, you know, you're going to star on the basketball team. If uh, you're going to start on the basketball team, if you're going to be better than mm-hmm. the other guys, the other girls on the team. Mm-hmm. Uh so that coupled with the belief this could be partially a communist belief i don't know but the belief that everybody is capable of being great but if you're not great that's your Mm -hmm. fault (laughs) and you need to work harder and i remember i had a sense that um probably delusional but i could win a nobel prize i don't even know what that entails um but i thought um like uh my dad early on told me just offhand and it always stuck with me that if you if you can figure out how to build a time machine how to travel back in time it will probably give you a nobel prize and i remember early in my life thinking i'm going to invent a time machine <laughs> and like That's- like the tools of mathematics were in service of that dream of winning the Nobel Prize. And it's silly. I didn't really think in those concrete terms, but I just thought I could be great, mm-hmm, that feeling. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then, then when you struggle, the belief that you could be great is like, struggle is good. Then. Right,
1: pushes you on, yeah.
0: And so uh, the other thing about the Soviet system that might would love to hear your comments about is just the sheer like hours of math. Like mm-hmm, the number of mm-hmm. courses, you're talking about a lot of geometry, a lot more geometry. I think in the American system, you take maybe one year of geometry. Mm-hmm, in high school, yeah. In in high school. First of all, geometry is beautiful, it's visual. And then yeah. you get to reason through proofs and stuff like that. In in Russia, I remember just being nailed over and over with geometry. It was just nonstop. And then of, of course, there's different perspectives on calculus and just the whole, mm-hmm. th- the sense was, that math is like f- like fundamental to the development of the human mind so m- math but also science and literature by the way was also v- hit very hard like we read a lot of serious adult stuff america does that a little bit too they they challenge young adults with good literature but they don't challenge adults very much with math with math mm-hmm. so those two things um valuing excellence and and just a lot of math in the curriculum. Do you think do you think
1: do you find that interesting? Because it seems yeah, to have been successful. It, yeah, I think basis. that's very interesting and there is a lot of success of people coming through the Soviet system. I think something that's very different to the US and other countries in the world is that idea that excellence is important and you can get there if you work hard. In the US there's an idea that excellence is important, but then kids are given the idea in many ways, that you can either do it or you're one of the people who can't. So many students in the school system think they're one of the kids who can't. So there's no point in trying hard because you're never going to get there. So if you can switch that idea, it would be huge. And it seems from what you've said that in the, US, in the uh, Soviet Union, that idea is really different. Now, the downside of that idea that anybody can get there if you work hard is that thought that if you're not getting there, it's your fault. And I I would add something into that. I would say that anybody can get there, but they, they need to work hard and they also need good teaching
2: right. because
1: there are some people who really can't get there because they're not given access to that good teaching. So but that would be huge that change as to doing lots of maths if um if maths was interesting and open and creative and multidimensional i would be all for it we we actually run summer camps at stanford where we invite kids in and we give them this maths that i love and the in our camp classrooms they were 3 hours long and when we were planning, the teachers were like, three hours, are we going to be able to keep the kids excited for three hours? Turned out, they didn't want to go to break or lunch. They'd be so into these mathematical patterns. Mm-hmm. We couldn't stop them. It was amazing. So yeah, if maths was more like that, then I think having more of it would be a really good thing.
0: So what uh, what age are you talking about? Is there, um? could you comment on what age is like the most important when people quit math or give up on themselves or on math in general and uh, perhaps that age or something earlier is really an important moment Mm -hmm. for them to discover, to be inspired to discover the magic of math.
1: I think a lot of kids start to give up on themselves and maths around from about fifth grade and then those middle school years are really important. And fifth grade can be pivotal for kids just because they're allowed to explore and think in good ways in the early grades of elementary school. But fifth grade teachers are often like, okay, we're going to prepare you now for middle school and we're going to give you grades and lots of tests. And that's when kids start to feel really badly about themselves. And so middle school years, we, our camps are middle school students. We think of those years as really pivotal. Many kids in, the, in those years are deciding, yes, I'm going to keep going with STEM subjects. Or no, I'm not, that this isn't for me. So, I mean, all years are important. And in all years, you can kind of switch kids and get them on a different pathway. But I think those middle school years are really important.
0: So what's the role of the teacher in this? So one is the explanation of the subject. But do you think teachers should almost do like one-on-one, you know, little Johnny, I believe in you kind of thing? Like that that energy (laughs) of like
1: turns out it's really important. There's um, a study that was done. It was actually done in high school English classrooms where all kids wrote an essay for their teacher. And this was done as an experiment. Half of the kids got feedback from their teacher, diagnostic feedback, which is great. But for half of the kids, it said an extra sentence at the bottom that the researchers had put on. Mm -hmm. And the kids who read that extra sentence did significantly better in English a whole year later. The only change was this one sentence.
0: What did the sentence say? So
1: what did the (laughs) sentence say? The sentence said, I'm giving you this feedback because I believe in you. And the kids who read that did better a year later. Yeah. So when I share this with teachers, I say, you know, I'm not suggesting you put on the bottom of all kids work. I'm giving this feedback because I believe in you. One of the teachers said to me, we don't put it on a stamp. I said, no, don't put it on a stamp. It's, um, but your words are really important and kids are sitting in classrooms all the time thinking, what does my teacher think of me? Does my teacher think I can do this? Um, so it turns out it is really important to be saying to kids, I know you can do this. And those messages are not given enough by teachers.
0: And really believe it.
1: And believe it. Yeah. Yeah, It's like, you can't uh, just say it. You have to believe it.
0: I I sometimes because like it's it's such a funny dance because I'm a, such a perfectionist and I'm, I'm extremely self critical and I have when I have students come up to me and it's clear to me that they're not even close to good and it's tempting for me to be like uh, to sort of give up on them mm-hmm, mentally mm-hmm. but the reality is like if you look at many great people throughout history. They sucked at some point.
1: Yeah, exactly. And,
0: and some of the greatest took nonlinear paths to where yeah. they sucked for long into la- into mm-hmm. later life. And so always kind of believing that this person uh, can be great.
1: Uh, exactly. So that,
0: you have to communicate that plus it. the fact that they have to work hard.
1: That's it. Yeah. Yeah, and you're right. Silicon Valley, where I live, is filled with people who are dropouts at school mm-hmm. or who had special needs, who didn't succeed. Um, It's very interesting that have gone on to do amazing work in creative ways. I mean, I do think our school system is set up to um, value good memorizers who can reproduce what a teacher is showing them and push away those creative, deep thinkers, often slower thinkers. They think slowly and deeply, and they often get the idea early on that they can't be good at maths or other subjects. So, um, yeah, I think many of those subject people are the ones who go on and do amazing things,
0: so there's a guy named Eric Weinstein I know many mathematicians like this, but he he talks a lot about not having a about having a non standard way of learning. Mm. I mean, a lot of great mathematicians, a lot of great physicists are like that. And he felt like he became quickly, he he got his PhD at Harvard, became quickly an outcast of the system. Like the the education, especially early education system, didn't help him. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Is there ways for an education system to support people like that? Is it this Mm -hmm. kind of multidimensional learning that you're mentioning?
1: absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think our education system still uses an approach that was in classrooms hundreds of years ago. The textbooks have a lot to answer for in producing this very uninspiring mathematics. Um, but yeah, if you open up the subject and have people see and solve it in different ways and value those different ways. Somebody I appreciated a lot is a mathematician called Miz Mizukhani. I don't know if you've heard of her. She mm-hmm. won the Fields Medal. She was from Iran.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, first woman in the world to win the Fields Medal in mathematics. She's She died when she was 40. She was at Stanford. But her work was entirely visual, and, and she talked about how her daughter thought she was an artist because she was always visualizing, and I attended, she asked me to chair the PhD defense for one of her students, and I went to the defense in the math department, and it was so interesting because this young woman spent like two hours sharing her work, all of it was visual. In fact, I don't think I saw any numbers at all. It's awesome. And... I remember that day thinking, wow, I could have brought a like 13-year-old into this PhD defense. They would not recognize this as maths. Mm-hmm. But when Mariam Mizakarney won the Fields Medal, all these other mathematicians were saying that her work had connected all these previously unconnected areas of maths. And so, but when she was, she also shared that when she was in school, when she was about 13, she was told that she couldn't do maths. She was told that by her teacher. This is Iran? She, mm-hmm. she grew up. In, in Iran. Iran. Yeah. yeah. So I love that. You know, to be told you can't be good at maths and then go on and win the fields medal is cool.
0: I've been told by a lot of people in my life that I can't do something. I'm very definitely non standard. <laughs> um, but all it takes is that's that's why people talk about like the one teacher that changed everything that's for right. them. All it takes mm-hmm. is one teacher. That's right. That's that's the power of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That it, 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 so that that's like that should be inspiring to teachers. Like I think it is. So you as a single person, given the education right. system, given the incentives, you have the yeah. power to truly change lives. And like twenty years from now, that's right. A Fields medalist will walk up to you and and yeah, say thank so you.
1: You did that for me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I share that that with teachers that even in this broken system of what they have to do for districts and textbooks a single teacher can change kids' maths relationship or other subjects and uh, forever.
0: What's the role of the parents in this picture? (laughs) Let's go to another difficult (laughs) subject.
1: Yeah, that is a difficult subject. Um, One study found that um, the amount of maths anxiety parents had predicted their child's achievement in school. Um, But Only if they helped with homework. So.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's so funny. (laughs) Yeah. There
1: there are some interesting implications for this. I mean, you can see how it works. If you have maths anxiety and you're helping your kids with homework, you're probably communicating things like, I was terrible at this at school and, and that's how it gets passed on to kids. So. One implication is if you have a really bad relationship with maths, you hate maths, you have math anxiety, just don't, don't do maths homework with your kids. Um But we have a on our website, we have a little sheet for parents of ways to interact around maths with your kids. And that's uh, ucubed.org. That's ucubed.org, yes. So one of the things I say to parents when I give parent presentations is even if you hate maths you need to just fake it with your kids you should be always endlessly optimistic and happy about doing maths and um i'm always curious about
0: this so i you know i hope to have kids one day i don't have kids currently um are parents okay with like sucking at math and then trying to get their kid to be better than them essentially? Like, is that a difficult thing for a lot of parents?
1: It is difficult.
0: To have like, it's almost like an ego thing. Like I never got good at this and mm-hmm. I probably should have. And yeah, I mean, to me that you want to celebrate that, but I know a lot of people struggle with that. Like coaches in sports to, to make an athlete become better than them, mm-hmm. it can be hard on the ego. Yeah. So, yeah, is that the, do you experience the same with parents,
1: parents too? I think. I mean, I haven't experienced parents worrying that their kids will be better than them. I have experienced. I have experienced parents just having a really bad relationship with maths, and gotcha. you know, not wanting to help, not knowing how to help, saying things. Like another study showed that when mothers say to their daughters, "I was bad at maths in school," their daughter's achievement goes down. So we know that kids pick up on these messages, and um, which is why I say you should fake it. But also, I know that lots of people have just had a really bad relationship with maths, even successful people. Like the undergrads I teach at Stanford have pretty much always done well in maths. But they come to Stanford thinking maths is a set of methods to memorize. And so so do many parents believe that. There's one method that you memorize and then you reproduce it. So until people have really had an experience of what I think of as the other maths, where until they've really seen that it's a really different subject, um, it's hard for them to be able to shift their kids to see it differently.
0: Is there for a teacher, if we were to like systematize it, is there something teachers can do to do this more effectively? So you you mentioned, you mentioned the textbook. Yeah. So so what what are the additional things you can add on top of this whole old school traditional way of mm-hmm. teaching mm-hmm. that can improve the the process?
1: Mm-hmm. So I do think there's a way of teaching maths that changes everything for kids. Uh, And teachers. So I'm one of five writers of a new framework for the state of California, a new math framework. It's coming out next year. And we are recommending through this math framework that people teach in this way. It's called Teaching to Big Ideas. Mm -hmm. So um, at the moment, people have standards that have been written. And then textbooks have taken these standards and made... Not very good questions, mm-hmm. and if you look at the standards, like I have some written down here, just reading the standards, it makes it, math seem really boring and uninspiring.
0: What 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 are the kind of? Can you give a few examples? What? So
1: this is an, an interesting example. In third grade, there are three different standards about unit squares. <laughs> Okay. Um, so this is one of them. A square with side length one unit, called a unit square, is said to have one square unit of area and can be used to measure area.
0: And that's something you're expected to learn.
1: That is something. that. So that's a standard. The textbook authors say, "Oh, I'm going to make a question about that. And they translate the standards into narrow questions.
0: And then you measure success by your ability to deliver on, yes. all, on these standards.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. So the standards themselves, uh, I, I think of maths, and many people think of maths in this way, as a subject of like a few big ideas and really important connections between them. Um, so like a, you could think of it as like a network map of ideas and connections. Mm-hmm. And what standards do is they take that beautiful map and they chop it up like this into lots of little pieces and they deliver the pieces to schools. And so teachers don't see the connections between ideas, nor do the kids, So anyway, this is a bit of a long way of saying that what we've done in this new initiative is we have set out maths as a set of big ideas Mm -hmm. and connections between them. So this is a grade three. Mm -hmm. So instead of there being 60 standards, we've said, well, you can pull these different standards to get in with each other and... um, also, value the ways these are connected.
0: And by the way, for people who are just listening, we're looking at a small number of uh, like big concepts within mathematics mm-hmm. square tiles, measuring fraction, shape, and time, and then how they're interconnected. Mm-hmm. And so the goal is for this is for grade three, for example.
1: Yeah. And uh, um, the- so we've set out for the state of California the whole of mathematics, K. 10, as a set of big ideas and connections. So we know that teachers, it works really well if they say, okay, so a big idea in my grade is measuring. Um, And instead of reading five procedural statements that involve measuring, they think, okay, measuring is a big idea. What rich, deep activity can I use that teaches measuring to kids? And as kids work on these deep, rich activities, maybe over a few days, Turns out a lot of maths comes into it. Mm-hmm. So, we're recommending that let's not teach maths according to all these multiple, multiple statements and lots and lots of short questions. Instead, let's teach maths by thinking about what are the big ideas and what are really rich, deep activities that teach those big ideas.
0: So, that's the like how you teach it and maximize learning. What about like from a school district perspective? like measuring how well you're doing, you know, the grades and tests and mm. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Do you throw those out or is, there, is it possible? I'm not
1: a fan of grades and tests um, myself. I think grades are fine if they're used at the end of a course. So at the end of my maths course, I might get a grade because a grade is meant to be a summative measure. It kind of describes your summative achievement. But the problem we have in maths classrooms across the US The U.S. is people use grades all the time, every week or every day even. My own kids, when they went through high school, technology has not helped with this. When they went through high school, they knew they were being graded for everything they did, everything. And not only were they being graded for everything, but they could see it in the grade book online and it would alter every class they went into. So this is the ultimate, what I think of as a performance culture. You're there to perform Somebody's measuring you, you see your score. Um, So I think that's not conducive for deep learning and yes, have a grade at the end of the year, but during the year you can assess kids in much better ways. Like teachers can, a great way of assessing kids is to give them a rubric that kind of outlines what they're learning over the course of a unit or a few weeks. So kids can actually see the journey they're on. Like, this is what we're doing mathematically. Sometimes they self-assess on those units. And then teachers um, will show where, what they can, what the kids can do with a rubric and also write notes. Like, you know, in the next few weeks, you might like to learn to do this. Or, um, so instead of kids just thinking about, I'm an A kid or a B kid, or I have this letter attached to me they're actually seeing mathematically what's important and they're involved in the process of knowing where they are mathematically at the end of the year sure they can have a grade but um during the year they get these much more informative measures
0: i i do think this this might be more for college but maybe not i some of the best classes i've had is when i got a special like set aside like the 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 professor clearly saw that I was interested in some aspect of a thing, mm. and then um I've a few in mind, and one in particular, when he said that um he kind of challenged me, so this is outside of grades and all this, that that kind of stuff that basically it's like reverse psychology i don't I don't think this can be done. And so I gave everything to do that Mm -hmm. particular thing. So this was happened to be in an artificial intelligence class. But I I think that like special treatment of taking students who are especially like excellent at a particular little aspect, that you see their eyes light up. Mm -hmm. I, I often think like maybe it's tempting for a teacher to think you've already succeeded there, but they're actually signaling to you that like you could really launch them on their way. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I don't know, that's too much to expect from teachers, I think, to 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 pay attention to all of that because it's really difficult. But I, I just kind of remember who are the biggest, the most important people in, in the history of my life, of education. And it's those people that who really didn't just like inspire me with their awesomeness, which they did, but also just, they pushed me a little, yeah. like they gave yeah. me a little push. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm.
0: And that requires focusing on the quote unquote excellent uh, uh, students yeah. in the class. Yeah,
1: I think what's important though is teachers to have the perspective that they don't know who's gonna be excellent at right. something before right. they give out the activity. Exactly, And in our camp classes that we ran, um, sometimes students would finish ahead of other students. And we would say to them, Can you write a question that's like this, but different? Um, or, and, and over time, we encourage them to like extend mm. things further. I remember we were doing one activity where kids were working out the borders of a square and how big this border would be in different case sizes. And one of the boys came up uh, at the end of the class and said, I've been thinking about how you do this with a pentagon. And I said, "That's fantastic. How do? How? What does it look like with pentagon? Go, you know, find out. See Mm -hmm. if you can discover." So I didn't know he was going to come up and say that, and I didn't have in my head like this is the kid who could have this extension task. But you can still do that as a teacher Um, when kids get excited about something or they're doing well in something. Have them extend it, go further. Mm -hmm. It's great.
0: And and then you also like this is like. Teacher and coach you could say it in different ways to different students like for me the right thing to say is uh almost to say uh, I don't think you could do this this is too hard mm-hmm. like that's what I need to hear mm-hmm. it's like no I you know you, you there's an the immediate push but with some people if they're a little bit more I mean, it all has to do with upbringing, just yeah. how your genetics mm-hmm, is.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: They might be much more, that might break them.
1: Yeah, that might break them. And mm-hmm. so you
0: have to be also sensitive to that. I mean, teaching is really difficult. <laughs> it the, is really difficult uh, for, for this very reason. <laughs> it is. So, um, what is the best way to teach math, to learn math at, the, at those early few days when you just want to capture them?
1: I do something. Actually, there's a video of me doing this on our website that I love when I first meet students. And this is what I do. I show them a picture. This is the picture I show them. And it's a picture of seven dots like this. Mm-hmm. And I show it for just a few seconds and I say to them, I'd like you to just tell me how many dots there are, but I don't want you to count them. I want you to group the dots. And I show it them and then I, I, I take it away before they've even had enough time to count them. And then I asked them, so how did you see it? And I go around the room, and amazingly enough, there's probably 18 different ways of seeing these seven dots. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I ask people, tell me how, how you grouped it. And some people see it as like an outside hole with a center dot. Mm-hmm. Some people see like stripes
2: mm-hmm.
1: of lines. Some people see segments. And I collect them all, and I put them on the board. And at the end, I say, look at this. We are a class of... 30 kids, and we saw these seven dots in 18 different ways. There's actually a mathematical term for this. It's called groupitizing.
0: Groupitizing?
1: Yeah. (laughs) I like it. It's kind of cool. So turns out, though, that how well you groupitize predicts how well you do in maths.
0: Is it a raw talent or is it just something that you can develop? I don't think
1: it's I don't think you're born groupitizing, I think, but some kids have developed that um ability if you like and you can learn it you can so this to me is part of how wrong we have maths that we think to tell whether a kid's good at maths we're going to give them a speed test on right. fact on multiples but actually seeing how kids group dots could be a more important assessment of how well they're going to do in maths anyway i diverge what, what i like to do though like when I start off with kids is show them. I'm going to give you math problems. I'm going to value the different ways you see them. And it turns out you can do this kind of problem asking people how they group dots with young children or with graduate students. And it's engaging for all of them.
0: Is uh, You talk about creativity a little bit and flexibility in, in your book Limitless. What, what's the role of that? So it sounds like there's a bit of that Mm-hmm. kind of thing involved in groupatizing.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> I, lo- I love this term. So what's what, what would you say is the role of creativity and flexibility think, in, in the learning of math?
1: I think what we know now is that what we need for this 21st century world we live in is a flexible mind. It's School should not really be about teaching kids particular methods, but teaching them to approach problems with flexibility being creative thinking creatively is really important so people don't think the words maths and creativity come together but i that's what i love about maths is the creative different ways you can see it and so helping our kids there's a book i like a lot by been by physicists you probably know this book called elastic Mm. you might know it um And it's about how we want elastic minds. Same kind of thing, flexible, creative minds. And schools do very little on developing that kind of mind. They do a lot of developing the kind of mind that a computer now does for us.
0: Memorization.
1: Memorization, doing procedures, a lot of things that we spend a lot of time in school on, In the world, when kids leave school, a computer will do that, and better than they will. But that creative, flexible thinking, we're kind of at ground zero at computers being able to engage in that thinking. Maybe we're a little above ground zero, but um, the human brain is perfectly suited for that creative, flexible thinking. That's what humans are so great at. So I would like the balance to shift in schools. Maybe you still need to do some procedural kind of thinking, but there should be a lot more of that creative, flexible thinking.
0: And uh, what's the role of other humans in this picture? So collaborative uh, learning, so brainstorming together, so creativity as it emerges from the collective intelligence of multiple humans. Yeah,
1: super important. Um, We know that also helps develop your brain, that social side of thinking. And I love mathematics collaboration where people build on each other's ideas and they come up with amazing things. I actually taught 100 students calculus at Stanford recently, undergrads, and we taught them to collaborate. So these students came in Stanford and most of them were against collaboration. In maths.
0: This is before COVID in person?
1: Yeah, it was just before COVID hit. It was 2019. And um, the sorry, summer. Sorry,
0: you said they're against. Uh, yeah, so
1: <laughs> it's really interesting. So they'd only experienced maths individually in a kind of competitive, individual way. Yeah. And if they had experienced it as group work, it had been a bad experience. Like maybe they were the one who did it all and the others didn't do much. So they were kind of against collaboration. They didn't see any role for it in maths. And we taught them to collaborate. And it was hard work because as well as the fact that they were kind of against collaboration, they came in with a lot of like social comparison thinking. So I'm in this room with other Stanford undergrads and they're better than me or... So when we set them to work on a maths problem together, the first one was kind of a disaster because they were all like, they're better than me, they're faster than me. They came up with something I didn't come up with. So we taught them to let go of that thinking and to work well together. And one of the things we did, we decided we wanted to do a pre and post test at the end of this teaching. It was only four weeks long. But we knew we didn't want to give them like a time test of individual work. So we gave them an applied problem to do at the beginning. And we gave them to do in pairs together, and we gave each of them a different colored pen and said, work on this activity together and keep using that pen. So then we had all these pieces of student work, and what we saw was they just worked on separate parts of the paper. Uh, So there's a little red pen section and a green pen section. And they didn't do that well on it, even though it was a problem that middle or high school kids could do, but it was like a problem-solving kind of problem. And then we gave them the same one to do at the end, gave them the same colors, and actually they had learned to collaborate. And not only were they collaborating the second time around, but that boosted their achievement. And the ones who collaborated did better on the problem. Collaboration is important. Having people, and what was so eye-opening for these undergrads, and they talked about it in lovely ways, was... I learned to value other people's thinking on a problem, mm-hmm. and I learned to value that other people saw it in different ways. And it was quite a big experience for them that they came out thinking, you know, I c- I can do maths with other people. People can see it differently. We can build on each other's way ways of thinking.
0: I got a chance to I don't know if you know who Daniel Kahneman is. Got a chance to interact with I do. him, mm-hmm. and like the first because he had. A few, but one famous collaboration throughout his life uh, with Tversky. And just like, you know, he hasn't met me before uh, in person, but just the number of questions he was asking, just the curiosity. So I think one of the skills, the collaboration itself is a skill. And mm-hmm. I remember yeah. my experience with him was like, okay, I get why you're so good at collaboration because he was just extremely good at listening Mm -hmm. and genuine Mm -hmm. curiosity about how the other person thinks about the world, sees the world. And then together he's, he pulled me in, in that particular case, he doesn't know in particular, like that much about autonomous vehicles, but he kept like asking all of these questions. And then like 10 minutes in, we're together trying to solve the problem of autonomous driving. Mm -hmm. And like, and that I mean, that's really fulfilling. That's really enriching. But it also, in that moment, made me realize it's kind of a skill. Because you have to kind yeah. of put your ego aside, yep. put your view of the world aside, and try to learn how the other person
1: right. sees it. And the other thing you have to put aside is this social comparison right. thinking. Right. Like If you are sitting there thinking, wow, that was an amazing idea. He's so much better than I am. That's really going to stop you taking on the value of that idea. Hmm. And so there's a lot of that going on between these Stanford students when they came. And yeah, but try- <laughs> trying to help them let go of that.
0: One of the things I've discovered, just because being a little bit more in the public eye, how rewarding it is to celebrate others. Yeah. And how much is going to actually pay off in the long term yeah so this kind of silo thinking of like i want to prove to a small set of people around me that i'm really smart Mm -hmm. and do so by basically not celebrating how smart the other people are that's actually maybe short term it seems like a good strategy but long term it's not and i think if you practice at the student level and then at Mm -hmm. the career at every single stage i think that's ultimately
1: I i agree with you i think that's a really good way of thinking about it
0: You mentioned textbooks, and you you didn't say it, uh, you know, um, maybe textbooks isn't the perfect way to teach mathematics, but I I love textbooks. They're like pretty pictures and they smell nice and they open. Mm -hmm. I mean, I talk about like physical. Some of my greatest experiences have been just like, oh, like, because they're really well done. When we're talking about basic, like high school, calculus, biology, chemistry, mm-hmm. those are like, those are incredible. It's like Wikipedia, but with color and mm-hmm. and uh, nice little stuff. You must style. have seen
1: some good textbooks if they had pretty pictures in color.
0: Yeah, I mean, I remember, I guess it was very, very standard, like AP, AP calculus, AP biology, AP chemistry. I felt those are like some of the happiest days of my life in terms of learning was high school. Cause it was, it's very easy, honestly, it felt hard at the time, but you're basically doing a um, whirlwind tour of all of science.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: W- without having to pick, you do mm-hmm. like, literature, you do like Shakespeare, you do calculus, biology, physics, uh, chemistry, what else? Anatomy, physiology, computer science. Without like, nobody's telling you what to do with your life. You're just doing all of those things.
1: That's it's, a good thing. You're right.
0: But I remember the textbooks weren't, I mean, maybe I'm romanticizing the past. Mm-hmm. But I remember they they, they weren't they are pretty good. Uh, but so you think what role do you think they play still in like in this more modern digital age? What what's the best materials with which to do these kinds of educations?
1: Yeah. Well, I'm I'm intrigued that you had such a good experience with textbooks. I mean, I can remember loving some textbooks I had when I was learning and I love books. I love to pick up books and look through them. But a lot of maths textbooks are not good experiences for kids. They, um, we have a video on our website of the kids who came to our camp, and one of the students says, in maths, you have to follow the textbook. The textbook's kind of like the Bible. You have to follow it. And every day, it's slightly different. Like on Monday, you do 2.3. And on Tuesday, you do 2.3.3. And on Wednesday, and you never go off that. That's like every single day. And that's not inspiring for a lot of the kids. Mm. So one of the things they loved about our camp was just that there were no books. Even though we gave them sheets of paper instead, they still felt more free because they weren't just like trotting through exercises exercises so um like what what
0: a textbook allows you is like you're the the very thing you said they might not like the 2.3 two, point,
2: yeah, two, point, the, three, uh-huh, two uh-huh. point
0: it feels like you're making progress and like it's little celebrations because you do the problem and it seems really hard and you don't know how to do it and then you try and try and then eventually succeed and then you make that little step and further progress and then you get to the end of a chapter and you get to like it's closure you're like all right i Mm -hmm. got that figured Mm -hmm. out and then you go on to the Mm -hmm. next chapter
1: i can see that i mean i think it could be in a textbook you can have a good experience with a textbook but it it, what's really important is what is what is in that textbook textbook, what are you doing inside it and I mean, I grew up in England, and in England, we learn maths. We don't have this separation of algebra and geometry. And I don't think any other country apart from the U.S. has that. But I look at kids in algebra classes where they're doing algebra for a year, and I think I would have been pretty bored doing that. <laughs> um, By but- the way,
0: can we, can we analyze your upbringing real quick? Um, why... Do British folks call mathematics maths? maths. Why is it the plural? <laughs> is it is it because of everything you're saying where it's a bunch of subdisciplines?
1: Yeah, I mean mathematics is sure is supposed to be the uh the ma- the different maths that you look at, mm-hmm. whether you think of that as topics like geometry and probability or or I think of it as maths is just multi-dimensional lots of ways but that's why it was called mathematics and then it was shortened to maths and then for some reason it was just math in the US but to me math has that more singular feel to it mm-hmm. and there's an expression here which is do the math
2: mm-hmm.
1: which basically means do a calculation that's what people mean by do the math so i don't like that expression cuz you no know, math could be anything it doesn't have to be a calculation and so, yeah, I like maths because it has more of that broad feel to it.
0: Yeah, I love that. Maths kind of emphasizes the multidimensional, like a yeah. variety of different, uh, the, different the, the disciplines, different approaches, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Uh, what? So, But outside of the textbook, what do you see, like, broadly being used? You mentioned Sebastian Thrun and uh, MOOCs,
1: mm-hmm. you
0: know, like online education. Do you think mm-hmm. that's an effective set? It like, can
1: be. I mean, uh, online uh, – having great teachers online obviously extends those teachers to many more people. And that's a wonderful thing. Um, I have quite a few online courses myself. I got the bug working with Sebastian when he was had released his first MOOC. And I thought, hmm, maybe I could do one in maths education. And I didn't know if anybody would take it. Um, I remember releasing it that first summer, and it was a free online class. And 30,000 maths teachers took it that first summer <laughs> and they were all talking about it with each other and sharing it. And it was like, took off. In fact, it was that MOOC that caught, got me to create Ucubed mm-hmm. with Kathy Williams, who's the co-founder, um, because people took the MOOC and then they said, okay, what now? Like I finished, what, what can I have next? <laughs> and so that was where we made our website. But Um, So, yeah, I think online education can be great. I do think a lot of the MOOCs don't have great pedagogy. They're just a talking head. Mm -hmm. And you can actually engage people in more active ways, even in online learning. So I learned from the Udacity principle when I was working at Udacity never to talk more than like five minutes. And then then to ask people to do something. Mm. So... That's the sort of pedagogy of the online classes I have. There's a little bit of presenting something, and then people do something, and there's a little bit more. Because I think if you have a half-hour video, you just I mean, switch off and start doing other things.
0: So the the way Udacity did it is uh, like five, ten-minute like bit of teaching,
1: and then with you, some
0: visual stuff perhaps, and then there's like a quiz almost. Then you like answer that. a
1: question, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: No, that that's that's yeah, that's really effective. You mentioned cubed So, what's the mission? What's the goal? You, you mentioned how it started, but what's mm-hmm. uh, um, yeah, w- where are you at now? And what do you? What's your dream with it? Or what are the kind of things that people should go and check out on there?
1: Yeah, we started cubed I guess it was about five years ago now, and we've had over fifty-two million visitors to the site. So, I'm wow. very happy about that. And our goal is to share good ideas for teaching with. Teachers, students, parents, in maths, and to help, we have a sort of sub goal of a raising maths anxiety. That's important to us, but also to share maths as this beautiful, creative subject. And um, it's been really great. Uh, we have lessons on the site, but one of the thing, one of the reasons I thought this was needed is there's a lot of knowledge in the academy about how to teach maths well. Loads and loads of research and journals and lots of things written up but teachers don't read it they they don't have access to it they're often behind paywalls they they're written in really inaccessible ways so people wouldn't want to read them or understand them so this I see is a big problem you have this whole industry of people finding out how to teach well not sharing it with the people who are teaching so um, that's why we made YouCubed. And instead of just putting articles up saying, here's some things to read about how to teach well, we translated what was coming from research into things that teachers could use. So lessons, there were videos to show kids, and um, there were tips for parents. There were all sorts of things on the site. And it's been amazing. As we ha- We took inspiration from the Week of Code, which
2: mm-hmm.
1: got teachers to focus on coding for a week and um we have this thing called the week of inspirational maths <laughs> and we say just try it for a week just just give us one week and try it and see what happens and so it's been downloaded millions of times teachers use it every year they start the school year with it and what they tell us is it was amazing the kids lights were on they were excited they loved it and then the week finished and i opened my textbooks and the lights went out and they were not interested <laughs>
0: yeah but uh, but getting that first inspiration is still powerful i mean if- it
1: is i i wish i mean my what i would love is if we could actually extend that for the whole year mm-hmm. we're a small team at stanford and we're trying to keep up with great things to put on the site um we haven't the capacity to produce these creative visual math tasks for every year group for every day. But I would love to do that.
0: How difficult is it to do? I mean, it's uh, to, to come up with uh, visual formulations of these uh, big important topics you need to think about in a way that, you know, that, uh, that, that that you could teach.
1: I mean, it. we can do it. We actually, we went from the week of inspirational maths and we made K8 maths books with nice. exactly that. Big ideas, rich activities, visuals. We just finished the last one. We've been doing it for five years and it's been exhausting and we just finished. So now there's a whole K-8 set of books and they're organized in that way. These are the big ideas. Here are rich, deep activities. Mm -hmm. Um, They're not, though, what you can do every day for a year. So some teachers use them as a kind of supplement to their boring textbook And some people have said, okay, this is the year. This book tells us what the year is. And then we'll supplement these big activities with. Mm. Um, So they're being used and teachers really like them and are really happy about them. I just always want more. And, And I guess one of the things I would like for you, Cubed, one of my personal goals is that every teacher of maths knows about U cubed. <laughs> yeah. At the moment, a um, lot of teachers who come to us are really happy they found it, but there's a lot of other teachers who don't know that it well, exists.
0: I hope this helps. Yeah. From a student perspective and not in the classroom, but at home studying, you know, is there some um, advice you can give on how to best study mathematics? what's the role Mm. of the student outside the classroom?
1: Yeah, I think one thing we know is a lot of people, when they review material, whether it's maths or anything else, don't do it in the best way. I think a problem a lot of people have is they read through maybe a teacher's explanation or a way of doing maths, and it makes sense, and they think, oh, yeah, I've got that, and they move on. Um, But then it's not until you come to try and work on something and do a problem that you actually realize you didn't really understand it just seemed to make sense. So I would say this is also something that neuroscientists talk about to keep giving yourself questions is a really good way to study rather than looking through lots of material. It's always like giving yourself lots of tests is a good way to actually deeply understand things and know what you do when you don't understand.
0: So would the questions be in the form of the material you're reviewing is the answer to that question? Or is it almost like beyond, it's the polygon thing that you mentioned mm-hmm.
2: from a square.
0: Is it almost like, I wonder what is the bigger picture I was kind of asking mm-hmm. of like, how is this extended and so on?
1: Yeah, that that, that would be great. and. It's a similar, I mean, a question I get asked a lot is about homework. What is a good thing for kids to do for homework? And one of the recommendations I give is to not have kids just do lots of questions for homework, but to actually ask them to reflect on what they've learned. Like, what was the big idea you were work- you learned today? Or what did you find difficult? What did you struggle with? What was something that was exciting? Um then kids go home and they have to kind of reflect in a deeper way. A lot of times, I don't know if you had this experience as a math student, lots of people do. Kids are going through maths questions, they're successful, they get them right, but they don't even really know what they're about. Mm-hmm. They, and a lot of kids go through many years of maths like that, doing lots of questions, but that, really knowing what even the topic is or what it's about, what it's important for So. Having students go back and think at the end of a day, well, what was the big idea from this maths lesson? Why is it important? Where would I find that in real life? Those are really good questions for kids to be thinking about.
0: It's probably for everybody to be thinking about. I think yeah. most of us go through life never asking like the bigger question, almost mm-hmm. like, you know, those like layers of why questions that kids ask when they're very young. Yeah. We we need to keep doing that. We do. Like what, uh, that's the, you know, whatever the term is, you call first principles thinking. Some people call it that, Mm -hmm. which is like, why are we doing it this way? So one one nice thing is to do that because there's usually a good answer. Like the reason we did it this way is because it works for this reason. But then if you want to, do something totally novel is you'll say, well, we've been doing it this way, um, because of historical reasons. But really, this is not the best way to do it. There might be other ways, and, and that's how invention happens. Right. And then you get, you know, that's really useful in every aspect of life, like choosing your career, choosing your, um, I don't know, what, where, where you live, yeah, who your like romantic partner is, like everything, everything, yeah. And I think it probably starts (laughs) doing that in math class. (laughs) That would be good if we started doing. I want. I mean, I wonder. I I probably didn't do very much of that for most of my education. Asking why, except for later, much later, in the subjects on like grad school when you're doing research on them, when your first task of doing something novel using this or solving a problem really outside the classroom. They have to publish on it. It's the first time you think, wait, why are these things uh, interesting, useful? Which are the things that are useful? And yeah, I guess that, was, that would be nice if we did that much earlier, That uh, the quest of invention.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the sad pieces of research data I think about is the questions kids ask um, in school goes down. Like in in a huh. linear, uh, you know, progression from in the early years, you can't stop kids asking those questions, but they learn not to ask the questions.
0: I think you told somewhere about an early memory you had in your own education where you asked the question, or maybe that was an example you gave, but it was shut down.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> You've listened to something I said, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't in remember where it was, but or it, it, yeah. caught, it caught me.
1: Yeah, I remember it really vividly.
0: What, I, can you tell uh, the memory?
1: Yeah, I was, it's funny, I can remember. It must have really impacted me in that moment because you know how there's lots of hours of school you don't remember at all. But anyway, um, I, I can remember where I was sitting and everything. I was in high, a high school maths class, although they don't call it that in England. And um, the teacher said, and it was like the first class of this teacher's class. And he said, ask if you have any questions. So at one point I put my hand up and I said, I have a question. And he said something like, that's your question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, okay, I'm not asking any more questions and in this class. Hard
0: in a way where you didn't want to, the lesson you learned from that is, I'm not going to ask. Yeah,
1: that, that was absolutely the lesson I asked. That's the last question I'm asking. And um. That was, yeah, he was the chair of the maths department. I remember that really well. So uh, maybe because of that experience, one of the things we encourage when we teach kids is asking questions, and we value it when they ask questions, and we put them up on walls and celebrate. And um...
0: It's funny because I wish there was a feedback signal because he probably to put a positive spin on it, he probably didn't realize the negative impact he's had in mm-hmm. that moment, right? If he only knew. See, this is probably when you're more mature in grad school. I had an amazing professor named uh, Ali Shakafande in uh, computer science. And he would get, he encouraged questions, but then he would tell everybody how dumb their questions are. Mm. But it was, it was done, I guess if you show, if you say it with love and respect behind it, then it's more like a friendly, humorous encouragement for mm. more questions. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, it's an art, right? Yeah. To, to, to what, do it, to write. Teaching you, is
1: very hard. Yeah. You have
0: to time it right because that's probably, that kind of humor is probably better for when you're uh, in grad school versus yeah. when you're in the early education.
1: Right. Well, and I guess kids or young people get whether somebody's, Doing it to be funny, or you right. know, has it? This, I mean, this is why teaching so hard. Even your tone can be impactful.
0: It's so sad because, like, for uh, it, for that particular human, the teacher, you could just had a bad day, and one statement can have a yeah. profound negative impact. But
1: I know, sadly, that maths. There's a lot of maths teachers who have that kind of approach, and they. I think they're suffering from the fact that they think people are math people, or not math people. And that comes across in their teaching.
0: But on the flip side, one positive statement. Yeah. To keep them going.
1: That's right. That is the flip <laughs> side of that. And I myself had like one teacher who was really amazing for me in maths and she kept me in the subject. I
0: what? Would uh, have left who, it. who was she? Who she
1: was, she? was um, her name was Mrs. Marshall. <laughs> 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 and um, she was my A-level maths teacher. So I was What's in that mean? In England, you do lots of subjects. So you're 16 and then you choose like three or four subjects. So I had chosen maths and you go to higher levels. Probably equivalent more to a master's degree in the US because you're more specialized. But anyways, she was my teacher. And for the first time in my whole career in maths, she would give us problems and tell us to talk about them with each other. And so here I was sitting there at like 17, talking with friends about how to solve a math problem. And that was it. That was the change that she made. But it was profound for me. I, because like those calculus students, I started to hear other people's ways of thinking and seeing it. And we would talk together and come up with solutions. And I was like, that was it. That changed maths for me. And I oh, so
0: it wasn't some kind of personal interaction with her. It was more like she uh she was the catalyst for that collaborative
1: mm-hmm, experience mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, the many ways teachers can inspire kids I mean sometimes it's a personal message, but it can be your teaching approach that changes maths for kids
0: you know uh cal newport he uh he wrote a book called Deep Work and he's a mathematician, a theoretical computer scientist, and he talks about the kind of the focus required yeah. to do that kind of work.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Is there something you can comment on? You know, we live in a, in a world full of distractions. That that's, seems like one of the elements that makes studying, and especially the studying of subjects that require thinking like math does, difficult. Is there something from a student perspective, from a teacher perspective, that encourages deep work that you can come? Yeah, with
1: I think giving kids really inspiring deep problems, and we have some on our website, is a really important experience for them. Um, even if they only do it occasionally, but it's really important. They actually realize. I, I do. I, I give a problem out often when I'm working with teachers, and I say to them, all right, I'm going to check in with you after an hour. And they were like, an hour? They think it's shocking. And then they work on this problem, and after an hour I say, okay, how are we doing? And they're like, an hour's gone by?
2: <laughs>
1: how is this possible? Yeah. And so everybody needs those like rich, deep problems. Most kids go through their whole maths experience of however many years, never once working on a problem in that kind of deep way. So I, the, the undergrad class I teach at Stanford, we do that. We work on these deep problems every session and the students come away going, okay, I never want to go back to that maths relationship I had where it was just all about quick answers. I, Mm -hmm. I just don't want to go back to that. And so We can all, all teachers can incorporate those problems in their classrooms. Maybe they don't do them every day, but they at least give kids some experience of being able to work slowly and deeply and to go to deeper places and not be told they've got five minutes to finish 20 questions. Yeah.
0: Well, part of it is also just the... um the exercise of sitting there and maintaining focus for prolonged periods of time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's not often, I mean, um, that's a skill. Yeah. It's a skill that uh, that also could be discouraging. Like if you don't practice it, just sitting down for 10 minutes straight and maintaining deep focus could be exceptionally challenging. Like if you're really thinking about a problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to re- I think it's really important to realize that that's a skill that you can, just mm-hmm. like a muscle you can build you can start with 5 minutes and it goes to 10 minutes to 30 and to an hour and and to be successful i think in certain subjects like mathematics you want to be able to develop that skill otherwise you're not going to get to the 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 really rewarding experience of yeah. solving these problems
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. definitely there was a survey done of kids in school where they were asked how long will you work on a maths problem before you give up and decide it's not <laughs> yeah. possible to solve Good it question. And the result uh, on average across the kids was 2 minutes. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. So that's a that's a bad sign but that's that was well, a powerful sign that uh they need to learn to not give up so quickly. Yeah. Uh we, we mentioned offline because we've been talking so much about visualization, uh, Grant Sanderson through Luan Brown, mm-hmm. so he's inspired millions of people mm-hmm. with the kind of uh, exactly the kind of way of thinking that you've been talking about. Which yeah,
1: is I love his work.
0: Converting sort of uh, mathematical concepts into visual, uh, like uh, visually representing them, exploring them in ways that uh, help you illuminate like the concepts. Um, what, what do you think is the role of that? So he uses mostly programmatic visualizations. So it's the thing I mentioned where there's like animations created by writing uh, computer programs. Um, like what, what do you think, how scalable is that approach? But in general, what do you think yeah. about his approach? I think
1: it's amazing. I should work with him. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can share some of our visuals and he can make them in that amazing yeah. way. Um,
0: so part of it is storytelling. Part, yeah. part of it is like, um, it's creating the visuals and then weaving a story with those visuals that kind of builds, like there's also, I mean, there's also drama in it. You start yeah. with a small example and then you right. kind of, all of a sudden there's it, yeah. a surprise.
1: Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> and it really, I mean, it makes you fall in love with the
2: That's right.
0: With the concept. Yeah. He, he does talk about that his sense is like, some of the stuff he he doesn't feel like he's teaching
2: mm-hmm.
0: like the core curriculum which is something you know he, he sees himself as an uh, inspirational figure but because i think it's too difficult to kind of convert all of the curriculum into those right. elements
1: and, and probably you don't need to i mean you if people get to experience mathematical ideas in the way that he shares them um, that will change them and it will change the way they, they think. And maybe they could go on to take some other mathematical idea and make it that beautiful.
0: Well, he does that. Uh, there's a He created a library called Manum and he open sourced it. And that library is the, uh, people should check it out. It's written in Python and it uses some of those same elements. Like it allows you to animate equations and animate little shapes. Mm. Like people that, you know he has a very distinct style in his videos and what that resulted in even though from a software engineer perspective the code he released is not like super well documented or perfect but him releasing that now there's all of these people people educating it it. and the the cool to me personally the coolest thing is to see like people they're not you know don't have like a million subscribers or something. Is they, they they have just a few views in the video, but it just seems like the process of them creating a video where they teach is like transformative to them yeah. from a student perspective. It's yeah. the old Feynman thing: the best way to learn is to teach, right? And then him releasing that into the wild is yeah. It shows that that impact. Uh, yeah,
1: absolutely. I think just giving people that idea that you can do that with. Maths and other subjects they're bound to be people all around who can create more which is cool
0: yeah I definitely so I recommend that people do like JavaScript or Python you can you can build like visualizations of
2: mm-hmm.
0: most concepts in high school math yeah. you can do a lot of kinds of visualizations and doing that yourself plus if you do that yourself people will really love it people actually people love visualizations of math. <laughs> Yeah, because they—I mean—it's something in us that loves patterns, loves figuring out difficult things Absolutely. and the patterns in yeah. that are then are unexpected in some way.
1: Yeah. Have you ever noticed that hotels are always filled with patterns? <laughs> I was just noticing it at the hotel I'm in now. All of their carpets are yeah. pattern carpets, and then they have patterns on the walls.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> we humans love. The symmetry and patterns, the mm-hmm. breaking of symmetry in patterns. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and
2: patterns.
0: It, yeah. And it's funny that we don't see mathematics as somehow intricately connected to that, but it
1: is. Right. I mean, that's one of the perspectives I love students to take is to be a pattern seeker. And <laughs> in everything. In in yeah, certainly in all of maths. I mean, you can think of all of maths as a kind of subject of patterns and not just visual patterns, but you know, when you think about multiplying by five and the fact you can, you know, if, you, if you're multiplying 18 times five, you can instead think of nine times 10. That's a pattern that always works in mathematics. You can halve a number and double them a number. And so, yeah, I just think there are patterns everywhere. And if kids are thinking their role is to see patterns and find patterns, it's really exciting.
0: What do you think about like MIT open Courseware? and the release of lectures by mm-hmm. universities.
1: I think it's good. I think it's good. I think the that is what started the MOOC I did was using that platform.
0: So you ultimately think like the Udacity models is a little bit more effective than just a plain two hour lecture. I
1: think there's definitely, you can bring in good pedagogy into online learning. And I think the idea of putting things online so that people all over the world can access them is great. I don't think the initial excitement around MOOCs, sort of democratizing education and making it more equal, um, came about because they found that the people taking MOOCs tended to be the more privileged people. Mm-hmm. So that was, I think there's still something to be found in that there's still more to be done to help that online learning reach those Principles, but um, definitely, I think it's it's a good invention. And I have an online class that's for kids. That's little free class that gives. What's the topic? It's called How to Learn Maths. How Um, to learn maths. It shows maths as this visual creative subject, and it shares mindset and some brain science. And um, kids who take it do better in maths class. We've studied it with like randomised controlled trials and giving it to middle school kids and other middle school kids who don't take it but are taught by the same teachers, so their teachers are the same. And the kids who take the online class end up 68% more engaged in their maths class Mm. and do better at the end of the year. So that's a little six-session, 15-minute class, and it changes kids' maths relationships. So it is true that we can do that with some words That aren't you know not it's not a huge change to the education system.
0: Do you have advice for young people? We've been talking about mathematics quite a bit, but uh, in terms of their journey through education, through their career choices, through life—maybe middle school, high school, undergrad students of how to live a life that they can be proud of.
1: I think if I were to give advice to people especially young people, my advice would be to always, it sounds really corny, but to always believe in yourself and know that you can achieve because, although that sounds like obvious, of course, we want kids to know that they can achieve things. I know that millions of kids who are in the school system have been given the message, they cannot do things. Mm-hmm. And adults too, they have the idea, oh, I did okay in this, I went into this job, because those other things I could never have done okay in. Mm -hmm. So actually when they hear, hey, maybe you could do those other things, even adults think, you know, maybe I can. And they go back and they encounter this knowledge and they relearn things and they change careers and amazing things happen. So for me, I think that message is really important. You can learn anything. Scientists try and find a limit they're always trying to find a limit like how much can you really learn what's the limit to how much you can learn and they always come away not being able to find it people mm-hmm. can just go further and further and further and that is true of people born with brain um you know areas of their brain that aren't functioning well that have what we call special needs some of those people also go on to develop and do amazing things so i think that Really experiencing that, knowing that feeling, not just saying it, but knowing it mm-hmm. deeply, you can learn anything, is um, um something I wish all people would have.
0: Actually also applies when you've achieved some level of success too. What I find, like in my life with people that love me, when you achieve success, they, they keep celebrating your success and they want you to keep doing the thing that you were successful at as opposed to believing in that you can do something the, the, else, something, else mm-hmm. something big, whatever your heart says to do. Right. And one of the things that I realized the value of this, uh, you know, quite recently, which is sad to say, is how important it is to seek out, uh, when you're younger, to seek out mentors, to mm-hmm. seek out the people, like surround yourself with people that will believe in you. Yeah. It's like a little bit is, yeah. uh, is on you.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> it's like, uh, you don't get that um, sometimes if you go to like grad school, you think you kind of land on a mentor, maybe you pick a mentor based on the topic they're interested in. But the reality is the people you surround yourself with, they're going to define your life yeah. trajectory. That's so really sl- select
1: people That's that really true. And get away from you. people who don't believe who don't. in you.
0: Sometimes parents can be that. Yeah. They can love you deeply but they be, you know, they set, it's the math thing we mentioned, they might set certain constraints on the beliefs that you have. And so in that, if you're interested in mathematics and your parents are not that interested in it, don't listen to your parents on that one dimension.
1: Right. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, and if people tell you you can't do things, you have to hear from other people who, who believe in you. I think you're absolutely right about that so sad the number of people who've had those negative messages from parents. In my Limitless Mind book, I interviewed quite a few people who'd been told they couldn't do maths. sometimes by parents, sometimes by teachers. And fortunately, they had got other ideas at some point in their life and realized there was this whole world of mathematical thinking that was open to them. So it's really important that people do connect with people who believe in them however hard that might be to find those people.
0: What do you hope the education system, education in general, looks like 10, 20, 50, 100 years from now? Are you optimistic about this future?
1: Yeah, I definitely have hope. There is, change can happen in the education system. In recent years, it's been microscopically slow. and um, But I do actually see change happening. Like We were talking earlier that Data science is now a course you can take in high school instead of algebra two. And that's pretty amazing because that content was set out in 1892 and hasn't changed since then. And so now we're actually seeing a change in the content of high school. So I'm amazed that that's happening and very happy it's happening. But So change is very slow in education usually, but when you look ahead, and think about all that we know and all that we can offer kids in terms of technology, you've got to think that 100 years from now, education will be totally different to the way it is now. Maybe we won't have subject boundaries anymore because those don't really make much sense.
0: And it's interesting to think how certain tools like programming Maybe they'll be deeply integrated in everything we do. You would think,
1: yeah. You would think that all kids are growing up, learning to program and create. So um, I just think, I mean, the system of schooling we have now, people call it a factory model. It's not designed to inspire creativity. And I feel like that will also change. People might look back on these days and think they were hilarious, but um, Maybe we'll, in the future, kids will be doing their own programming and they'll be able to learn things and find out things and create things even as they're learning. And um, maybe the individual subject boundaries will go. Data science itself coming into the education system kind of illustrates that because people realize it doesn't really fit inside any of the subjects. Mm-hmm. So what do we do with it? Where does it go? And who teaches it? So it's already raising those kind of questions and questioning how we have these different subject boundaries. So you've seen data science be integrated into the curriculum? Yes, it's happening across the United States as we speak.
0: I wonder how they got initiated. Like, how does change happen in the education system? Is it just a few revolutionary like, it le- does, leaders? It does.
1: I think so. I think so. It's been an interesting journey seeing data science take off, actually. it um, There was a course that was developed in 2014 by some people who thought data science was a good idea for high schoolers. And then after some kids took the course and nothing bad happened to them, and <laughs> they went to college and people started to accept it more. And then this was a big piece of the change in California. The UC system communicated. They sent out an email last year to 50,000 high schools saying, we now accept data science. Kids can take it instead of Algebra 2. Mm. That's a perfectly legitimate college pathway. So that was like a big green light for a lot of schools who were like wondering about whether they could teach it. So I think it happens in small spaces and expands. So now- It goes viral. Yeah. In this Cal- modern age. Then it goes viral. California's <laughs> ahead, ahead, um, I think, in creating courses and having kids go through it. But it's- so, suddenly when i last looked there were 12 states that were allowing data science as a high school course and i think by next year that will have doubled or more so change is happening
0: <laughs> joke as i said i think mathematics is um uh, is truly a beautiful subject and you having an impact on millions of people's lives by educating them, by inspiring teachers to educate in the ways that you've talked about—in multidimensional ways, in visual ways—I um, think is incredible. So you're, oh, you're spreading you. beauty I really appreciate into that. the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I really, really appreciate that you spend your valuable time with me today. Thank you for talking.
1: Thank you. It was really good to talk to you.
0: Thanks for listening to this conversation with Joe Bowler. To support this podcast, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now let me leave you with some words from Albert Einstein. Pure mathematics is the poetry of logical ideas. Thanks for listening and hope to see you next time.